What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to Health Media Now with award-winning author and host, Denise Messenger, for a lifetime of health empowerment. Live by being in the pink, meaning P stands for being persistent. I stands for using your intuition. N stands for networking. And K stands for obtaining knowledge. Our guests entertain and share cutting-edge information. They share with you what may have taken years to achieve through experience in their field. Become inspired and motivated. Reach your full potential with fascinating tips and products. Receive a lifetime of benefits from authors, doctors, practitioners, healthcare providers, and learn about exciting new products. You asked for it, and we deliver. Now, here's your host, Denise Messenger. Well, hello, listeners. Thank you so much for joining us today, which is February 1st, 2017. We're going to be talking with Dr. Kevin Ryan, and our subject today is reducing your fear if you're diagnosed with cancer, and also we'll talk about various cancer treatment options and also we'll focus on what you can do personally to overcome this very, very difficult disease. Dr. Ryan, he is now retired, but he just wrote a book called When Tumor is the Rumor and Cancer is the Answer. And it's a comprehensive text for the newly diagnosed cancer patients and their families. I hold it dear to my heart because I'm a cancer survivor and I also wrote a book called Gut Cancer, Now What?, for the newly diagnosed back in 2012. And it really has helped a lot of people. Dr. Ryan, he mostly teaches and writes um, these days, but his background was a cancer doctor and he was a board certified oncologist, hematologist, and he also worked in the internal and palliative care medicine area. He is a retired colonel in the U.S. Air Force and a full clinical professor at UC Davis School of Medicine. It's his belief that through multiple surveys, patients and their families are more afraid of cancer than any other disease. And this is because they have a fear And the fear, a lot of times it paralyzes patients, and it can even lead to bad incomes. I know, for instance, in my book, Got Cancer, Now What?, that I talked a lot about how once you receive a cancer diagnosis, you basically go into denial. You subconsciously do this. You don't know that you're in it, but it can typically take up to six months to come out of it. And that's why if you're knowledgeable of the fact that this happens to you, you can then make better decisions about your care. Dr. Ryan in his book, he addresses how these anxieties come about in a systematic, kind of a logical, supportive, and often compassionate way and how cancer patients and their families play a big part in addressing these issues. So, you know, cancer patients and their families at times are not in sync. In other words, the cancer patient is scared to death. The families are scared to death. And what the cancer patient really needs is a lot of love and support. And that's 
also inclusive of what type of treatments that they decide that they want to do. A lot of times the families aren't in sync over that either. There's so many options out there these days, and often it takes a lot of research on the patient's behalf to come up with a really good comprehensive plan for treatment. Families often don't agree with perhaps what the patient decides that they want to do. But in that, it's imperative that the families and the friends support the patient in their choice. And, And the reason I say that is because once the cancer patient makes their decision on how they want to go, they need to believe that it's going to work. And they have to have very positive feelings about it working. They actually have come out with statistics that show that patients who are feeling negative and they're like that on a daily basis, their attitudes are very poor, they're the ones who typically don't have good outcomes. But the patients that come in, they embrace their treatment They're grateful that they're getting the treatment. They're happy that they're getting the treatment. Often, they really do have better outcomes. When tumor is in the rumor and cancer is the answer by Dr. Ryan, he covers various treatment options available. And he also, you know, talks about some of the symptoms and the side effects that patients can have. Now, it's my personal belief that everyone's body chemistry is different. We all don't receive the same drugs the same way, the same as we don't respond to the same foods that we eat the same way. So, you know, the physical and emotional aspects have to be addressed relative to this because it can be very disappointing if you're undergoing a specific cancer treatment and you're feeling really, really bad. Um, But then again, it can be very uplifting if you're responding really well and you feel good. Now there's, there's alternative and there's unproven therapies. There's cutting edge therapies uh, out there. And it really all depends on what the patient decides they want to do there physician. Patients also need to be active participants in their treatments at home and in the examination room. And the reason um, Dr. Ryan suggests this, as well as, you know, I, as a cancer survivor, also do, is because you have a limited amount of time when you go in to see your physician. Some appointments can be initial where you may have a half hour up to an hour, but typically once your treatment starts, your appointments are pretty short. And in that period of time, you may have a lot of things and a lot of questions that you may want to um, go over with your doctor. So as a result, um, Dr. Ryan and I are going to talk to you about what those questions should be. I am going to bring Dr. Ryan onto our show now. Hello, Dr. Ryan. Thank you so much for joining us. Good. Sorry, I had some phone trouble on this end, so my apologies to everyone. Okay. Well, I um I've been talking for, you know, the past f- 5 minutes um and going over um your book. And of course, I'm also a cancer survivor, so I've been uh, we share um, that. Yes. We yeah, we do. So I've also been um talking about some of the um you know, details of what a newly diagnosed patient uh, is confronted with along with their families 
and how important yes. it is that they receive emotional support, et cetera. Yes. Um, yes. I gave the um, audience um, a, a pretty thorough uh, review of your background and the fact that you're retired now, but that you've written this book called When Tumor is the Rumor and Cancer is the Answer. So why don't you uh, continue on with why you wrote your book and how you sure. feel that your book is helping cancer patients out in the world today? Sure. Well, it uh, it really has to do with being in touch with the human condition. Life is not fair. Bad things happen to good people, bad people, and providence shines on the evil and good alike. In the case of cancer, it is no respecter of persons. It's an equal opportunity abuser. No diagnosis frightens a patient or their family and loved ones greater in medicine, and this is documented in peer-controlled studies. It's not just an opinion. Than hearing the diagnosis of cancer, they would rather hear heart attack, some infectious disease, or some other malady before they hear cancer. Because cancer, since the beginning of time, has been this amorphous, how do you get your arms around it, can hit any organ, can go anywhere, conjures up images of loss of control, which is enormously important, dignity, integrity, your own autonomy, the ability to make your own decisions and direct your life, conjures up images of horrific therapies that cause great distress and and all types and manners of pain. These are the things that roll around in the head of many people when they hear cancer because a heart attack is as explicit. It's cessation of blood flow to a vessel that feeds the muscle of the heart. Cancer can be anywhere of any organ, at any time, in any one, for any apparent reason. Now, the majority of cancers are, indeed, things that we probably are doing to ourselves. About 12 to 15% right now are estimated to have a genetic basis that may change as our tools improve over time. But it's a great leveler. At the same time, it's a great mimicker of the norm. Not to be macabre or sound at all like an evil doctor, but <laughs> if you can understand the nature of what is counterfeit, you can understand the miracle of what is real. And just let that soak in for a while. When we train <laughs> yeah. our Secret Service agents to recognize the most commonly counterfeited bill, which is the $20 bill. We only train them to recognize every sim single semblance of what makes that $20 bill normal. Everything, feel, sense, touch, everything about it, not just visual. So that all they need to do when they encounter something that could be counterfeit is say, have I never seen this before? Is this not what is normal? And in that one little way, they know they have something counterfeit. Cancer has a myriad of ways where your normal liver cell knows, I'm done, I'm a liver cell, I've reached liverness, I'll now do livery type of things. But a cancer liver cell says, I'm not done, I'm going to keep growing. Mm -hmm. I'm going to possibly even shut off the immune system if I can from seeing me. Or I'll shoot out any chemotherapy drugs you try to send my way by pumps that I'll invent because of what you exposed me to. Or I will have just developed them out of my own aberrant genes themselves. If you study the abnormal, if you study how someone can hide, you discover how to find them. To extend the metaphor, if you study oncology, and there's two levels I'd like to address this on. One is the biologic, as I am now. You study the norm of the miracle of life because you see it unraveled and you see how it can be taken advantage of. On a deeper level, as I alluded a moment ago, that there were two levels, on a deeper sentient level, an existential level, you will never see greater heroes. And I'm a retired full colonel. And I came in during the Vietnam era, so I've mm -hmm. seen a lot. You will never see greater heroes 
than cancer patients. Second probably will be their number one caregiver, whether it's their mother, their father, their sister, their brother, their husband, their wife, whatever it may be. But you will never see greater heroes. Well, one of the greatest instruments of God's handiwork, certainly, is a human soul helping or at least seeing the vicissitudes, the, the, the essence, the, the grist, the grizzle of another human soul and appreciating it for the beauty that it has, even in the midst of a huge enemy like a malignancy. So when you're an oncologist, if you take the opportunity, and many, I think, do not, you have a chance to have a front row seat at watching one of the great schemes of life work itself out, fighting for survival, mm -hmm. and seeing the nobility of patients who may not claim that they're noble in the least, but in fact they are. Because everybody says, I could never go through it. I would never do that. I could never handle that. But they do. And you get yes, to do I, that more than other fields of medicine. Mm -hmm. I was talking, and you get to um, confront yourself. I was talking earlier in the show how important it is for cancer patients, once they've decided on a treatment protocol, to really believe in it and that it's going to cure them. Uh, having a positive attitude a lot of times shows positive outcomes, negativity and, yeah. and negative attitudes. You'll find a lot of times those patients don't make it. There is a great deal of self-fulfilling prophecy involved in that. We're learning more and more in the neurophysiologic labs across the world that there's actual hard wiring to that. For example, the placebo effect probably has actual neurochemical and uh, neural pathways associated with it that if you believe in something, you may in fact get a positive result. Um, but it's, there's certainly a, a lot of truth to that, to, to committing committing to it. That's why one of the earliest chapters in the book is uh, the one that talks about attitude and talks about the sweet life, um, about how to handle when duress comes your way. So I agree with you completely in that regard. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and you've, in your profession, you've, I'm sure you've witnessed a lot of it. Yes, uh, there's no doubt about it. But it's it's a batting average of nearly 100% with the positive attitudes. There are some folks who are a pain in the derriere, often retired mm -hmm. colonels like myself, uh, <laughs> or very senior chief master sergeants where the rubber meets the road, you know, as opposed mm -hmm. to generals where the rubber meets the air. Uh, and uh, they may have some attitudes, but those are just shields and fences and defenses uh, to try and cope with a very difficult situation. The overwhelming majority, well over 95% of folks, absolutely face it. But what they need to do is that they need to convert that anxiety, which is, as I point out in the book and dedicate a chapter to, fear of the unknown, mm -hmm. into fight. And you do that through knowledge. You turn so anecdotes true. into antidotes. It's mm -hmm. true of everything in life, that when we are afraid of what we don't know, the visceral feelings of fear are even greater because there's another enemy on board, and that enemy is yourself. You're doing a number on yourself, not just the real facts and the real situation that you may be faced with. It's the ifs or the what, what ifs or could be's or woulda, coulda, shoulda. Uh, it's the, uh, the never and forever lie. It'll never change and it'll forever be this way. When you get knowledge, and that's why I wrote the book, and that's why it's structured the way in which it is, to walk you through the entire journey. When you get that knowledge, you get power absolute power mm -hmm. and the more you can engage that with the patient the better now to take this all out of the whimsical let's be practical what, what do i really do when the patients would walk in as much as possible we would have already discussed them among the staff so they'd know what was coming second 
the staff would be ready on notice that when that patient comes in for their first visit, we're up and we are in line to be introduced. And mm-hmm. I would usually take both of their hands and look at them square in the eye and square off in front of them and say thank you. And that's usually pretty disarming. I'm saying thank you to them. And usually the response is, excuse me. I said, you could have picked anywhere. You picked us. We realize this is your life. Well, that starts things going. And then we introduce them to everyone else because they're going to talk about their kids, their headaches, their bad parking, whatever, with the front desk. And they're going to talk about their life and their loves and their hopes and their dreams and their worries and their cares with the oncology nurses and the other med techs that they're going to interact with. And if I do my job, they're going to talk with me about everything and anything that is on their mind. And that's the second step. When we're in the office, I ask them about physical space. And they're wondering, what the hell am I talking about? (laughs) And what I'm saying is, do you want me to stand across the room with my hands on my hip and look at you like we're in a, you know, in a boot camp and I just tell you the facts and this is just the way it's going to be and this is the way way we're going to go? I don't think you really want that. What's a comfortable physical space for you? Can I stand next to you? Do you want me to sit in a chair? Do you want me to sit across from you? And I take the time to ask these questions because not only are they unusual at first blush, they're actually the most usual you should be asking because in your silence you're asking them anyway because you're about to either stand across the room or sit next to them or, you know, it's going to happen one way or the other. But you're engaging them and controlling their environment in what they thought was an uncontrollable situation. Mm -hmm. Then I ask them about spirituality and say, I'm not here to preach to you. I'm not talking to you about religion. I may not even be addressing theology. I'm talking about why are we here? What's the purpose? What's the point? Uh, What's important in life? What matters? Have you thought about these things? Do you think about them? I find it hard to believe that any human doesn't. But where are you on that? How big of of a thing is that to you? Is that something we should be addressing and embracing as we go along? Because, and I always tell them, If you don't, it will deal with you if you don't deal with it. Mm -hmm. So we we need to get that clear right away. Then I ask them, who is the one person, and it really should be one, that can be your scribe? The person that you know you can say, like in the game of post office, where you whisper a word and it passes around a circle and it comes out something silly to the other end, that it doesn't happen that when they hear something, they can repeat it back correctly. Who is the person that you want to be in this room, to listen constructively, and write down everything we say? And I usually give them an MP3 recorder the first time and then ask them to get one for themselves. Record every visit. I have nothing that I should be ashamed of that I have to say. And you want to have questions. You want to remember what you were told. Well, if you have an actual recording of it, You have nothing to remember, and you have everything to now delve into and start constructively creating your questions. And finally, avoid doing the big mistake, which is going to see a very famous doctor. Everyone knows this doctor. It's called Dr. Google. It's the worst doctor you can see before you've seen the real deal, and everybody does it. Everybody goes to the web before they've actually come in and seen the real deal. And this way, if they have this kind of an open line of communication, they realize that when I say, you have cancer X, well, wait a minute, cancer X of what size, on what day of the week, and what color, and where is it spread to, and is it this, is it this degree, is it this subset of cancer X? And in other words, like the vehicle identification number on a car, that's how explicit and specific we need to get in dealing with your cancer. If you accomplish those things in the first meeting, you will have a longer meeting then you're going to get paid for. That's true. But the coin that you should be looking to be paid for is the alleviation of pain and suffering. It's the alleviation of anxiety. 
in the heart and in the soul of them and their loved one that's in the room because that's a gift that keeps giving and you will save time overall there's data sadly that shows in many medical practices it's about an average of 30 seconds that a doctor keeps going and letting a patient talk before they interrupt them 30 seconds these are people who are being told they have a disease that might take their life or certainly alter it in some profound way and they're being interrupted every 30 seconds what is that well, that's mm-hmm. real hard data from real clinical research studies, and there's a lot of reasons we can get into that are both political and legislative and so on that have to do with that. But, you, you know, in the, in the sanctum sanctorum of that exam room with the patient, you know, you either take on those cloaks and the vestiges of the various roles that you will play to varying degrees with each patient. It will vary. Parish priest. Uh, friend on an appropriate level, confidant, psychiatrist, psychologist, uh, perhaps spiritual guide, uh, good listener, excellent clinician, uh, good researcher, a good aim at the web to show them how to use the Internet. Now that you finally have it nailed as to what is exactly going on, you're going to have a lot of roles you're going to play with that patient. So, all of that rolled together is what makes up that first visit, that first time, because you're visiting their heart and their soul and their head. You're not just visiting a case that walked in that has a specific diagnosis or, in fact, may not even have been diagnosed yet completely. And it's just an, another pound of flesh and you know, shank of hair to borrow from Shakespeare. I mean, that's, that's not what's going on. Right. You know, these days the the doctor appointments are getting shorter and shorter. Yes. Um, most of it is is um, due to the the carriers, but it's it's also due to now the fact that they're t- trying to digitalize everything. And so, you know, as a patient, you walk into the room. The doctor typically is sitting in front of a laptop now. Or he has somebody in there right. to do that function. Yes. And it cuts down on, say, the 15-minute down to maybe seven minutes that you actually have the physician in front of you. So I've recommended that patients come really well prepared for these, these visits. They need to have their questions written down <laughs> and boom, 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 you know? <laughs> That's why I break the rules and take the hours longer for the first visit, and that's why I wrote the book. If they read the book, and if you spend the first visit the way I suggested, which is a hell of a lot more than seven minutes, it will pay for itself Mm -hmm. over and over again. And in Mm -hmm. the terms of insurers and third-party payers, it will pay for itself because when you have an informed, engaged, in-control patient, a patient who in 1896, the Supreme Court, when they finally ruled on the fact that MD does not mean magnificent demagogue, (laughs) which we still have a bit too much of, when they finally ruled on it's your body, it's your decision, they used the phrase, you are co-captain of the ship. The ship mm-hmm. being you, the doctor, and the medical malady for which you are seeing that physician. If you can bring the patient to that point, how can you not save enormous amounts of time? And frankly, to hell with the time the pain and the suffering and the anxiety. And frankly, not the hell with that, but what about how they feel? Physically, Mm -hmm. as you alluded to earlier regarding the psychosomatic issues of medicine, if you have a patient more in control, you have a more compliant patient. You have a patient that gets their medications correctly. You have a patient that asks more intelligent questions. You have a patient who tunes in on signs and symptoms more easily. You have a patient more willing to speak up and to say what is on their heart, their mind, or their body. You Mm -hmm. have a patient who is a walking, living ledger of where they have been instead of totally handing their lives over to the magnificent demagogue. 
Now, granted, they didn't go through a fellowship in oncology, but when you combine these, the book, the way you talk with the patients, giving them the recorder, making sure that there's somebody assigned in the family as a scribe, because you can guarantee the patient may have the cancer, but the family will have a disease. So you want to pick very carefully (laughs) who it is that works one-on-one with you and the patient, who that caregiver is. That needs to be picked carefully. When you do all of those things, you then have a team effort that makes a real physical difference, quality of life, improves. And that's a fact, not an opinion, not some Disney theme. You see it every day. Just look around in your own life and reflect back when anxiety was alleviated. Were you not more effective at what? Mm-hmm. doesn't matter what it was. Were you not more effective? Were you not more educated for the next time the situation arises? Were you not more empowered to recognize, wait a minute, something is wrong, or I need to bring this up, or I need to look out for this, or I need to remember that I was told such and such? All of that occurs when you do these things correctly. And that's the way that I would teach my charges when it was my turn and to make sure that they understood that this is really, it's kind of a sacred moment. And don't ask me, just look back in the history of man. The medicine man, the guru, the shaman, call them what you wish, have always been held in a very high level of esteem because you're bringing suffering and you're asking for alleviation of that suffering. And there are ways to do it that work better and there are ways that others just don't do it, and they're technicians. In your, um, in your opinion, and obviously from research, are we doing better in curing cancer? Yes, absolutely. Hard data, no doubt about it, and that's why I answered as quickly as I did. You will see, it has to do with the words incidence, uh, and and the number of cases, but I, I don't want to get into epidemiologic and statistical terms. Let's put it simply. In the 1970s, when we had dreams of the cures that we are now starting to see and the techniques and the tools, which are phenomenal, just phenomenal, the, the types of therapies that are, that when you, how clever they are. Back then, you were looking at about 65% of adults would die when they were diagnosed with a uh, malignancy. Now it's around 45, 46%. That's a huge absolute percent difference. And in terms of relative percent, it's enormous. And the rate of cure is going up all the time. The number of cases is increasing, but that's because we're getting older and possibly because of things that we do to ourselves in terms of our diet, well, I, I, uh, in terms of environment, lifestyle. Environment, environment is, again, the data suggests a, that the majority are acquired reasons for developing yeah. malignancy after you, after you eliminate aging. Aging itself, cells break down. The human body was mm-hmm. not meant to keep going forever. True. So, yes, we are making enormous progress. And the therapies, it's like when Walt Disney had his first idea, <laughs> first first hint, first vision, you know, of a Disneyland mm-hmm. and then next the Disney World. And that one day, you know, we might be trying to use the immune system. Well, we are. One day we might be making antibodies that, well, we are, and now you can see them in rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, all kinds. We're seeing these applied in all kinds of fields of medicine. This water well, nanotechnology. Exactly right. One day we might be able to take advantage of genetic aberrancies inside the cancer cell and undo them or mm-hmm. block them or find their Achilles heel by what it is the voodoo they do and undo well, it. Certain, well, you know, we have uh, newer drugs now that basically right. will will um, destroy the membrane around the cancer cells so that another drug could come in and take them out. That's exactly right. That's ex- exactly right. And when and we I'm use talking the in layman's drug, terms. We need, we, 
no, we need that's fine. We need the audience to understand we're not talking about some gigantic IV that Dracula sticks in your aorta and you throw up until the day you die. Right. Some of these are oral pills, little pills. No nausea, no vomiting, but very, very, very smart therapy, target-based therapy, therapy based upon knowing what it is that this particular cancer does differently or doesn't do well enough and taking advantage of it mm-hmm. or combining these mm-hmm. therapies. For example, let's look at multiple myeloma, a disease of what I call the grenade throwing cells. Part of our immune system has Marines, part of it has that hit the beach right away, uh, like the pus in a pimple. I don't mean to mm-hmm. be crude. Uh, part of it has lymphocytes, which are thinking cells. Some of those lymphocytes make antibodies. Antibodies are like grenades that are lobbed out against anything foreign. Myeloma is when those cells that make antibodies, plasma cells, become malignant. You remember about the liver cell and then the malignant liver cell earlier? This is a plasma cell and these are malignant plasma cells. You died with this disease when you were, adults would get it and you would die. You would have a remission and you would die. Then we started with the transplant therapy. Then we started realizing how vascular they are, and we took observations from thalidomide babies, which you might remember, Mm -hmm. a drug that was given for sedation, and then we found children that didn't have full limbs and figured out, wait a minute, it's turning off new blood vessel formation. Well, wait a minute, said a clever group of many researchers. If I can turn off new blood vessel formation, well, don't cancer cells need new blood vessels? to travel, to move, to get nourishment, to get nutrition? Can I tailor it for them? And I can add more to things that the myeloma cells do differently that we learned and took advantage of. And now it is not unusual to see 10-year survival with or without a transplant. We now have antibodies with therapy at the first relapse that are highly well-tolerated, outpatient therapy, And this is a killer, killer cancer we're talking about, not that many years ago, that add another five to seven years. And right now, we don't know how long. Lung cancer, our number one killer. Finally, monoclonal antibodies are now showing us, instead of living a handful of months when you have advanced stage, which is almost always the case, non-small cell, meaning the cells aren't small under the microscope, the most common kind of lung cancer, that when we use these antibodies that are stealth cruise missiles aimed at a very, very specific target on the cancer cells and in the cancer cells, we are seeing that these infusions, not drugs that are making people throw up and lose their hair, that these infusions have reached all the way out to 35 and 40 months, and that's the average duration of survival before they show any evidence of progression. And remember, every month that seems to be getting a little longer because the studies are only so old. And it was rapidly approved, this drug, and cousins of this drug, and now is most likely, I would say, the standard of care for one of our most common cancers. We're actually thinking in years instead of months. Well, during that time, better and newer therapies or variations on that theme are going to be worked out by thousands of researchers all connected on the Internet and all meeting in virtual time and virtual space, Mm -hmm. not just Mm -hmm. in real meetings, which are wonderful, but in instant time, you can download immediately every clinical trial that's going on anywhere in the world and find out if someone is eligible or not eligible and find out what the results show at that point in time. So Is that a, is that a data, database um, specific to researchers and physicians? No, it, it, to clinicians. Uh, but clinicians can help patients. It's just a little tougher to negotiate for them. But uh, mm-hmm. patients can negotiate that. And the National Cancer Institute of this country, and it's not the only country by any means that does cancer research. Mm-hmm. We, yes, we are the leaders, but not in everything. 
and not all the time, and that's important to know, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. that the National Cancer Institute absolutely has a list of anything that has touched by or passed through or even waved over the NIH, National Institutes of Health, or the National Cancer mm-hmm. Institute, which is almost everything. It's on the web. It's on the web. Who the principal investigator is, how to, what their phone number is, uh, what conclusions criteria are, uh, how they're doing, who to call, uh, what about lodging nearby if it gets to that point, who's the coordinating nurse or nurses on, on the particular research study, and so on. The Internet has done an enormous amount bursting at the same time as scientists who won Nobel Prizes in the 70s and in the early 80s we're now seeing those Nobel Prizes build target-based therapy that's highly explicit. I mean, wouldn't you much rather, instead of taking some type of a scouring pad on your fine china and cleaning off your dishes and ruining them, wouldn't you much rather have a highly specific cleaner that does that and mm-hmm. only that? without Mm -hmm. toxicity to your hands or other things where you're being cleaned. Well, it's important to have individualized treatments specific to each and every patient. Absolutely. I've I've always um, had the belief that these cookie-cutter treatments for everyone can lead to a lot of failure. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Now, of course, there are some diseases like, let's see, I cut my finger, I need stitches. Okay. But mm-hmm. where was the cut in the finger? Did it involve a tendon? How deep was it? How many tissue layers are involved? Even something as simple as that. Take pause and recognize we are wonderfully and individually made and that there is no one patient that represents all patients with the same disease. There is no one car that represents all cars mm-hmm. of the same make, model, year, and everything identical. It's still not the same car. So you're absolutely right. And that's without even touching the existential aspects of this being an individual. Exactly. Oncologists today... Are, are you know their patient loads are pretty heavy as a result yes, of there being more and more cancer patients. And my question to you is, how in the world do these oncologists stay on top of all these new cutting-edge therapies? I know they go to a conference maybe once or twice a year, but they they've admitted to me they don't even have the time to read medical journal. There is a lot of truth to that. If you're an academic oncologist, you're going to have a lot more time, uh, especially if you have tenure and you're farther along. I'm a retired professor, so I understand that world. But yes, that is a challenge. I'm not going to downplay that. But let's not paint a picture where they're clueless or they have no idea. No, and and they they have people that they call that's exactly right. Doctors take calls from doctors all the time. Exactly. The exactly. same databases, they can be reached at the same time. And if you've mm-hmm. done tying all this together, if you've done those steps when I first met the patient in the hallway, all the way through that first visit, you have a team that's going to be on top of this going to be using the internet in an appropriate manner, having read this book and understanding where are they in the journey, having been on top of where are they in their own case because they're recording every visit, so you have co-captains of your ship. You're not Mm -hmm. alone as an oncologist in pursuing what is best for this patient. Patients want to learn. They're just afraid many times, in fact, most of the time. They can't. You know, I I have to true. admit to I have to admit to you that when I was diagnosed back in 2004 with two cancers at the same time, I had to take a systematic and research approach to my treatment protocols. Thus, I ended up with a village of people 
to help. <laughs> and I didn't I mean, cover I, that, and I was going to, and that's exactly what you just said. Mm-hmm. There are other people in that clinic besides the already highly valuable front desk, intermediate, the nurses, the doctors. There's the other patients, and there's their families and loved ones. Now, granted, as soon as anybody gets diagnosed with cancer, Uncle Joe's going to jump out of the closet with Kickapoo Joy Juice and say, I got just what you need to fix you. That always happens. But in time, you get plugged into the social support network, either literally, which I'm a great proponent of, or just by being there with the other patients, and you begin to individuate, you become your own individual with your own stories, and you participate with others, and you have kind of a, um, it's kind of a group effect that that occurs mm-hmm. like almost like the Stockholm syndrome mm-hmm. of having an affiliation with your captor cancer mm-hmm. where you have an affiliation with your other patients and you're following along with them and you have their highs and their lows and it is worth the journey because most of the time we win now so it is worth connecting emotionally being in support groups you're you're the new one on the block. Well, who didn't get scared the first day of kindergarten? You know, maybe mm-hmm. Arnold Schwarzenegger didn't. I don't know. But other than that, everybody else is. But soon, you're going to be one of the mentors, one True. of the tutors, one of the confidants, mm-hmm. confident right. that you are able to pass on all this incredible knowledge. Suffering is one of the greatest teachers that exists in this earthly bound by mm-hmm. by all means it is and suffering takes all manners of shapes and forms psychic as well as physical and you learn an enormous amount and one of the greatest bombs of gilead if you will for that suffering is teaching another passing mm-hmm. through to another feeling mm-hmm. for another Sympathy is a good thing. That's understanding how it could be the way it is for another. But empathy is feeling it, actually feeling it. And that is what occurs in a healthy oncology clinic. Mm -hmm. The man who wrote the foreword for my book, who is very famous, I mean, he was one of the heads at MD Anderson, then Memorial Sloan Kettering, then he ran the Cleveland Clinic Cancer Center, and now he's the head physician for Cancer Treatment Centers of America. Integrative medicine is what they are entirely about, and they're not alone. Mass General, Harvard, the Hopkins Group, uh, Mayo they're all Clinic, coming on many, board. all of them are coming on board with large teams that involve mm-hmm. a physiotherapist, a massage therapist, An other ways to take a right, <laughs> right, to look at other ways to address right, exactly, mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. of the needs of the total patient. Like I That's said right. from Shakespeare, we're not a pound of flesh and a shank of hair. We're so right. much more than that. So why well, should and, we be treated other than that way? And And when you have cancer, your whole body is sick. Exactly yeah. right. It's not, exactly it's not right. just your. It's not it's just not your tumor. The, your whole body is sick, and it has it's, to it's get silly. well. It's silly. It's like trying to live a life outside of the reality that you have a malignancy sitting somewhere in your left breast or in your right femur mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. in one spot in your liver. But the rest of you is just fine. The rest of you <laughs> is not just fine. No. Do you think no. this cancer just flew from the air? and landed where it did, and (laughs) your immune system had no say in it whatsoever. (laughs) And the rest of your organ systems had absolutely no interaction at all. And (laughs) nobody is on alert inside your entire body. (laughs) Oh, no. No, of course not. It's it's probably the most important thing that we have to say today, and we don't have that much time left, that it really is a whole body experience of illness. It is. That's why I wrote the book. That's why I wrote it the way I I wrote it and called it what I called it when tumor is the rumor and cancer is the answer. Because at first it is just a rumor. You don't Mm -hmm. know. 
you don't know. And then comes the answer that it's cancer. What the hell do you do next? Well, here mm-hmm. is your guide, and it covers everything that we've talked about in this very wide-ranging interview. It covers all of these things. Yes, it does. It really does. And, and I, I think that the information you've imparted to our listeners is it's just very powerful, and people are now more knowledgeable. And I encourage everybody to pick up a copy of Dr. Kevin Ryan's book, When Tumor is the Rumor and Cancer is the Answer. It's a comprehensive text for the newly diagnosed cancer patients and their families. It's, it's critical that you get a copy of this. I thank you very much for your time, and I'd ask people to visit the website, which is the same as the name of the book, When Tumor is the Rumor mm-hmm. and Cancer is the Answer, dot com forward slash. It's the same as the book, and it's therapeutic. There are a lot of a lot of these interviews. This interview will be posted on there most likely, and there's a lot of other videos mm-hmm. of what it's like for a patient to go through it or my talking about the book. So I, I'm, I just hope people get their hands on this. It's all nonprofit. I receive nothing from this. It all goes to the American Cancer Society. It's just my way of trying to say thank you and to give back. Well, we have a lot of gratitude for you coming on our show. I read your book. It's excellent. Thank you. Again, I encourage everybody to get a copy. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Kevin Ryan. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, listeners, that pretty much concludes our show for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Please tune in again next Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, which is also 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And until then, be happy and be healthy. Bye-bye. We celebrate our listeners worldwide and invite you to contact Denise at www.healthmedianow.com with any questions you may have and follow her on Twitter at Health Media Now and Facebook at Health Media Now. For those interested in an advertising campaign on her show, contact Lisa at knowledgeworkspub.com. Be sure to visit gotcancernowwhat.com for information on Denise Messenger's award-winning book, Got Cancer? Now What? The entire contents of this radio show are based upon the opinions of Denise and her guest. It's not intended to replace a one-on-one relationship with a qualified healthcare professional, and it's not intended as medical advice. It's intended as a sharing of knowledge and information, and we encourage you to make your own healthcare decisions based upon your research and in partnership with a qualified healthcare professional of your choice. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration.